0: Hi, my name is Víctor de Lorenzo, and in this video, I'm going to tell you a little bit of the work we have been running in my laboratory to domesticate environmental bacteria for different environmental applications. Let me show you where I come from. I work in the National Center for Biotechnology in Madrid, and before I forget, let me show you the faces of my collaborators, in particular those who have made most of the work I will share with you today, Pablo Nickel and Esteban Martínez. Our interest, uh, for a long time, has to do with using bacteria as whole cell catalysts. Well, what is that? Well, basically, it's what is in the cartoon. You have an input that is a a substrate and an output that is a product. And there's a bacterium that acts as a biocatalyst, in many cases with a very high efficiency you can wonder, well, where do we find all these catalysts that could be of interest for the industry or for environmental applications? Well, unlike other biologists that look for samples in very beautiful places, we, in fact, go to sites with a history of pollution by a chemical industry and by urban activities, and places like the one shown in the picture, that, for most of you, are completely disgusting for us, are a gold mine to find interesting bacteria and interesting genes that when we manipulate them with the tools of synthetic biology and the tools of genetic engineering, then do wonderful things. Why uh, are we looking for these catalysts in uh, such a places? Well, in these places, in fact, there's a kind of battle between a chemical landscape that is brought about by the presence of a large number of environmental pollutants, and in this picture you have a small number of them, Some of them come from the petroleum industry, like toluene, alkanes. In other cases, they are generally xenobiotic compounds, namely compounds that are there only because our chemical industry put them there. Otherwise, they would have never been existed in the biosphere. But then, here comes our heroes, namely bacteria, that by using or by exploiting different mechanisms of genetic and biochemical adaptation, end up being able to use these compounds as carbon sources, and therefore, what for us are bad environmental pollutants, for many of them, are gourmet food. This is just extraordinary because, you see, chemical industry uses to have very strong, environmentally um, damaging, in some cases, catalysts for executing reactions that bacteria, in other cases, can do at room temperature with a minimum environmental impact. And this is why we are so interested in environmental bacteria, because we argue that they are pre-endowed with a number of properties that make them ideal platforms for biocatalysis in industrial and environmental settings. Now, what are the names and the surnames of these bacteria? Well, there are many, many of them. In this picture, I just show you some of you may call the top 10 um, essay strains that have been isolated and that do extraordinary things. The names may sound little really weird, like Pseudomonas putida, will hold the area, you name them. And this is just a small fraction of the entire wealth of isolates that have been obtained over the years that do things as extraordinary as growing on toluene, on phenon, or phenanthrene, to for the typical environmental pollutants that are the consequence, as I said before, of our industrial and urban activities. And what happens is that uh, one of these uh, bacteria, that bacterium that is in top of the list, is uh, this one called Pseudomonas piotida. The name sounds a little strange. Taxonomists once in a while provide very funny designations to bacteria. Now, uh, this bacterium was isolated from a polluted soil and it is a really, really extraordinary vehicle as a sort of container for running extraordinary reactions of tremendous environmental and industrial capacity. The reason for that can be found in the genome that was, um, uh, uh, say first identified entirely in the early 2000s. And when you look in detail through the genes, you find some of the reasons that are behind of these properties that I was mentioning before. Uh, As a matter of fact, you may make a list of beneficial traits that one can find in Pseudomonas putida and other traits that are not so good. But in the beneficial traits, you have, for instance, the fact that Pseudomonas putida is very, very highly solvent-tolerant, and therefore it can run reactions under conditions or bacteria perhaps could not do it. It has some interesting metabolic features. For instance, the entire metabolism of it seems to be geared for production of NADPH, and this is something that is important for uh, bringing about a high resistance to environmental stress, in particular oxidative stress. Also has a diverse metabolism. It can grow in many different substrates, and is also, and this is important for biotechnology, is a bacterium that is generally regarded as safe, and therefore it has this so-called grass status that makes our life easier in terms of future applications. But it has other bad traits. In many cases, or in some cases, it displays um, a high level of resistance to various antibiotics. It has a complex surface in the cell. Uh, it has a number of prophages in the genome. It doesn't have a real good glycolysis, and this is something that, for metabolic engineering, sometimes makes our life a little uh, difficult. Because uh, in this case, instead of having the typical textbook glycolysis, we have an alternative glycolytic pathway that is called the ender daughter of pathway. I will return to that in a minute. And also, uh, well, it's an uh, obligate aerob, so that means that some reactions that we could run in anaerobiosis are not possible with the wild-type strain as it is. And finally, is what you may call a strain or a species that has a little bad reputation, because there are other members of the same genus, in particular, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, that is a pathogen that is involved in different uh, diseases. However, and here's the interest of synthetic biology, we can do much better than nature, go to the genome as nature gives it to us, and then look for traits that we want to enhance and other traits that we want to suppress. And this is what uh, we um, have called the process of uh, complete um, domestication. So, um, well, in nature, you find uh, some uh, biological uh, entities. And, well, in the cartoon, it's a kind of wolf. Very beautiful animal, but very dangerous and very unpredictable to use. And at the end, we have something that uh, could be completely predictable, like a robotic uh, dog. So, eventually, for biotechnology and for other applications, we have to have some biological systems with a predictability that would be similar to what one has, for instance, in robots. But we are not there yet. So, I would argue that we have to go through various stages in which uh, you start with a naturally um, existing biological system, the wolf in this case, and then uh, you go first through domestication. That means that you enhance some properties and you suppress others. And there's this other stage that I would argue that is precisely where we're at the moment in which we combine traits that are natural, with traits that we knock in the system just to increase the predictability and the usefulness of the biological system. And eventually, maybe in the future, in a few years, we will be able to design altogether from first principles uh, biological systems with a biotechnological potential. But I don't think we are there immediately. But we have to do something in between. And this is exactly what we call cyborgization. It's this idea of combining uh, artificial things with natural things. What is cyborgization? Well, there are at least four aspects to it. One of them is enhancement of innate traits. Then um, also replacement of traits that are there by better ones, but with the same functionalities. Then you can knock in entirely new traits. And importantly, you can eliminate drawbacks. Well, this is exactly what we have been doing with pseudomonas. But uh, there's a little detail that is really worth to spend one minute discussing. And is that to get into this massive cyborgization, reprogramming, or improvement of uh, an existing biological system, in particular, if it comes straight from the environment, like Pseudomonas putida, you need tools. And the quality of the tools will determine the quality of your final product. So, if you have what you may call primitive tools, then you can do nice things, but primitive at the end of it you can improve the tools and you get a better engineer system. And if at the end you're able to follow the track that has been followed before by electric engineers and and industrial engineers, namely standards and standard tools, then you can do much, much better and really push the engineering of biological systems much, much better than traditional uh, engineering uh, has been doing for a long time. So, in the case of Sedomonas putida, we have made our contribution to the field of a standardization, a development of tools, by putting together a large collection of molecular vectors for doing all types of operations in terms of genetics with Pseudomonas putida and other gram negative environmental bacteria. Namely, we have this long list of uh, vectors that can be plasmids, can be transposons and uh, a large number of antibiotic resistances, a large number of replication origins. And we have made sure that they are all compatible, interchangeable, reusable, and can be easy for... to use for uh, potential, say, applicants. And, uh, well, with these tools in our hands, we have been able to do things that, so far, we were unable to do. All this standardization um, has been inspired by many of the tenets of contemporary synthetic biology and the emphasis in standards, rigorous description of systems, description of boundaries, and all the rest of it. And this has been a big change in contrast with the type of engineering and biotechnology that we use with this... uh, we used to do with this bacterium before that. Well, I'm going to give you an example of the power of applying synthetic biology and standardized tools for knocking in Pseudomonas putida interesting properties. As I said before, C. monasputidae is a natural bacterium. You can find them in many places. And there are things that it can do and there are things that it cannot do. And, for instance, one of the things that it cannot do is to grow or to be active in the absence of oxygen. And this is something that, for some environmental applications, may give you trouble. Why? Because let's imagine that you want to make a strain that is able to degrade a typical soil pollutant, a chemical. Well, if you engineer some type of inoculation procedure in which you have your pathway for degradation of that compound in soil, you have to be aware that soil is such that the oxygen is present only in the very, very upper layers of soil. The moment you go a little down, then uh, oxygen is depleted, and for the most part, when you go a little further down, then you end up in an anaerobic niche. Well, you have a single catalyst, and you want the catalyst to work in a soil column, for instance, then it is evident that um, you need something that works as well in the presence or in the absence of oxygen. And this is something that nature has not reinvented a procedure, a, a, a trick, to make the same catalyst to work until these uh, two conditions. So, at that point, we said, well, uh, can we uh, look at the metabolic network that is present in pseudomonas And, uh, by using these standardized tools, uh, see what type of cyborgization we can make with them so that we enter some new genes, perhaps delete some other genes, and at the end, we may be able to reprogram the metabolism in such a way that bacteria that were formerly only able to grow in the presence of oxygen, now we make them to be metabolically active in the absence of oxygen as well. Well, the first step is to take a look to the metabolic network that uh, one finds in this type of um, uh, microorganism. Unfortunately, it is possible now to develop metabolic models on the basis of the genome sequence that one has, plus simple parameters that one can measure. There are various metabolic models that have been proposed by various authors to explain how uh, *Piputida*, putida, Pseudomonas putida, has the type of lifestyle that I have just referred to. And I will just quote the three that are in the... Um, in, in the screen, and there are others uh, coming every time more and more refined because this comes from existence biology and the advances in that field are immense as well. Okay, so by looking at um, the three models and other tools that we have to model metabolism, uh, well, you observe some interesting features that ultimately explain why Pseudomonas cutida is unable to grow in the absence of oxygen. Well, it's no surprise that, um, uh, you know, the, the um, phenotype, uh, namely lack of growth, uh, when oxygen is absent. And therefore, that means that uh, many or some of the genes that are typically present in anaerobic bacteria, for instance, anaerobic respiration, are altogether absent. Uh, however, and this is something that I will tell you how important it is, there are some genes related to fermentation. And this is a kind of uh, entry in, in this manipulation that I will tell you in a minute. But one way or the other, as nature gives uh, the metabolism network to us, so the cannot grow in the absence of oxygen. That's something that we knew already. Well, you can take a, a look to the various steps that are involved in the um, uh, degradation of glucose, for instance. And then, uh, well, you can make a classification of the enzymes, uh, see which of them uh, would be, um, could be improved, could be knocked in, could be knocked out. And, well, uh, at the end, one comes to the conclusion... That... Um, it, it, two of the reasons, maybe there are more, that uh, why uh, PPUT is unable to grow in the absence of uh, oxygen is because you don't have a lot of ATP and that you have an excess or reductive power. And let me tell you in one second what it is. Well, that you don't have ATP can be traced, or you don't have enough ATP to support anaerobic growth, it can be uh, tr- traced uh, to uh, various origins, but one of them, and uh, that we found to be quite important, is the fact that instead of having the typical glycolysis, as I mentioned before, then um, pseudomonas putida has this other type of um, a glucose pathway that is called the Etner-Dodorov pathway. And if you measure, you quantify the number of ATPs that are produced per molecule of glucose, etc., then uh, you find that the uh, outcome of ATP is worse than if you have the entire uh, and the classical um, uh, glycolytic pathway. And, uh, therefore, one possibility to increase uh, the um, ATP levels could be to trick a little bit with a production of ATP through, for instance, substrate-level phosphorylation. So, this is something that we have explored, and you will see that it makes a big difference. But then we have this other problem, and it's the problem that when you... Uh, grow cells in the absence of oxygen, then you get a big excess of NADH, that is the reduced form of this uh, important cofactor of many enzymes. So, one way or the other, uh, we have to uh, get rid of an excess of NADH and recreate, reproduce enough of NAD, that is the oxidized form of this uh, cofactor. Well, and uh, what I'm going to tell you in, in the next few minutes is how we were able to tackle by separate these two problems, and then how, ultimately, we were able to overcome the limitations that are connected to the dearth of ATP and the dearth of NED. Okay. Again, let's take a closer look to some of the pathways that one can find in the metabolism that goes as follows. There's a way in many bacteria uh, to generate ATP that starts with pyruvate. Then the pyruvate is transformed into acetyl-CoA by an enzyme that is called pyruvate dehydrogenase. Then acetyl CoA is converted into acetyl phosphate by another enzyme called phosphotransacetylase, and then eventually there's another enzyme called acetate kinase that can regenerate or can form ATP by taking um, the phosphorus out of the acetyl and just produce acetate. Now, when one looks at the metabolism of uh, pyruvate, one finds something that is very, very weird. Number... Uh, the, 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 the number one... Uh, well, that you have aerobic uh, hydrogenase, you have um, phosphotransacetylase, but... and this comes as a complete surprise, you don't have acetate kinase. So, it seems that, for whatever reason, the pathway is incomplete. So, one pathway that in anaerobic bacteria or in bacteria that can grow in the absence of oxygen or be metabolically active in the absence of oxygen is a must, happens to be missing in this uh, particular strain. Well, that the previous enzyme is there um, is a reality because we made the effort to make an enzymatic analysis and see whether the activity was there or not. There's a word of caution. Sometimes one finds a gene in a genome and you may believe that it's there and the sequence is there, but it may may not be expressed or perhaps the protein form that it encodes may not be completely active. So, it's always important to recheck that the activity that is predicted for a gene happens to occur in reality. So, we made a simple assay for uh, this enzyme, for the phosphotransacetylase, that is the uh, key... uh, one of the two key uh, activities in the process of of getting at the end ATP and acetate. And, well, the enzyme is there. It's it's not only there, but it's present at high levels. So, that means that, in principle, one can anticipate that in Piputera, um, the basal metabolism that is already there is able to produce enough amount of acetyl phosphate. Paracetyl phosphate is there, it stays there, and it cannot be further processed into acetate. So, that was a very, very good hint of what the strategy... what the strategy we would follow to overcome this problem of anaerobiosis, as I told you before. So, uh, the, the, um, the... the kind of take that we figured out is that, well, if we recruit uh, as, uh, the, the same enzyme, uh, 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 acetate kinase, from other... other... other, um, let say, microbe, then we should be able to complete this um, uh, phosphorylation at the level of substrate, and therefore knock in a new reaction that will end up in the production of acetate and would end up in the production of ATP. And at the end, this is exactly what we wanted, to have ATP. Okay, so this remains as a kind of possibility. Now we have the other problem that I mentioned before, namely how to get rid of NEDH, this uh, compound, this cofactor, that gets accumulated in bacteria that are unable to uh, grow under anaerobic conditions, and, and, and you put them in the absence of oxygen. Well, again, you take a look to the pathway that is present already in pseudomonas putida, and you observe that uh, you can start in pyruvate. There's an enzyme called pyruvate decarboxylase that will convert pyruvate into acetaldehyde. And, um, uh, well, uh, there's another enzyme that is called the hydrogenase that could end up in ethanol. But, as a matter of fact, when you look at the presence of these uh, possible enzymes in the genome, you don't find them. So, um, it is clear that you have, again, to go out hunting for uh, enzymes that do the job properly and uh, knock them in and see what happens. So, the source of those two wonderful enzymes that can start with pyruvate... And in ethanol and in the meantime, can get rid of an excess of NADH, could be found... be found in various bacteria. The ones that we were... uh, that we were lucky and they were very well, was the one that comes from Simomonas mobilis. That is a bacterium that is an obligate anaerobe used in Mexican biotechnology, traditional biotechnology, for production of alcoholic drinks. And uh, these two enzymes have been characterized, and we were able to get them from different... from uh, this bacterium, or Simomonas, and then uh, extract the sequence, uh, format it, following the rules of synthetic biology, using our vectors and our um, standardized approaches. And at the end, we were able to construct an operon, a synthetic operon, that contained all the activities that were necessary for meeting these two demands that we observed out of the metabolic model that were impeding uh, these strains to grow in the absence of uh, oxygen. So, uh, on the one hand, uh, we had this um, acetate kinase from uh, E. coli, and then we put that together with, a, uh, with the other two genes that came from Simomonas to get rid of NADH. And we constructed a, a polycystronic operon in which we had first um, uh, the gene from E. coli, and then the two other genes, we formatted them by putting them in nice intergenic regions with good chantal and, well, all the, say, additions that you can get out of the growing knowledge in how to build pathways in uh, synthetic biology. And, uh, well, at the end, we put that into pseudomonas putida, and we observed that all the activities that we expected to be expressed were indeed expressed, as is demonstrated in the table that you have in the lower part of the slide. But that was not sufficient, of course. Then the, we wonder what would be the uh, physiological effect of exp- expressing this uh, genes in Pseudomonas putida, and this is the results. What we observed, and this were very, very good news, is that when you enter, you knock in this artificial operon in Pseudomonas putida, then the cells survive the absence... the absence of oxygen. So, uh, in this graph, if you go through it, uh, the graph will tell you that wild-type bacteria are very, very sensitive to the uh, lack of oxygen, and they die off very, very quickly in the moment that oxygen is over. However, if you knock in this artificial operon, then you gain just survival uh, to levels that are nearly the same that the wild-type bacterium in the presence of oxygen. So, that was very good news, and that was an indication that one, one can... Uh, one can get the physiology of the bacteria by knocking in uh, genes that are recruited from very, very different places. Okay, so we have our, our favorite um, uh, bacterium in, in um, growing or surviving, in anaerobiosis, another um, another question would be: Well, can we measure what you may call its metabolic vitality? And to do that, what we did was to knock in a reporter system that produces a fluorescent um, say protein that depends in its functioning on the levels of FMN, that is a metabolite that is a indicator of this metabolic metab- uh, metabolic vitality that we were after. And uh, in this type of experiments, we observe. That whereas in the case of the wild-type bacterium, the presence and absence of oxygen made a big difference in terms of the vitality that we will observe in the cells. Namely, in the presence of oxygen, where well, cells were very happy with... they had a lot of signal. In the absence, it went down the drain. When you knock in this artificial operon, then you see that the differences decrease and they are very, very similar in the same range. So, that means that cells now have changed their physiology, their metabolism, and they are metabolically active in the absence of oxygen, something that was not possible before. Okay, so in that way, we already have part of the story that is to have a bacterium that is able to be metabolically active in the uh, absence of oxygen. But now, here comes the interesting part. Can we use this bacterium to knock in a pathway for degradation of a real environmental pollutant and make it work under anaerobic conditions? Well, that was the next step. And then what you have there is, uh, is a chlorinated compound. As um, uh, you see, it's a dichloro-compound. And it has been uh, put in the uh, environment, in the soil, as a pesticide, as, a, as something that you use for um, uh, treating um, various types of agricultural problems. And it goes into the soil, and then is very, very calcitrant, and it's really difficult to degrade. Now. This compound uh, is very difficult because the extremes that are at the end of the carbon chain are occupied by chlorides, and enzymes are really, they have difficulties to really get into uh, the final degradation. However, there are strains that have been described in the past that can take this compound, the chloropropene, and, and uh, start their degradation by means of two key enzymes that are encoded by other pseudomonas strains that are also aerobic, and that managed to get this compound, the from the very, very beginning all the way to CO2 and water. And then, in this case, the challenge was to make yet another artificial operon in which we could clone... Uh, we could put together in a single transcriptional unit the various activities that were coming from another pseudomonas uh, under the control of a single promoter that could be regulated and could be controlled at will from an external promoter, And then we were able to find variants that really work very well in Pseudomonas Cutida, and we could trace the activity of these uh, variants because the reaction produces chloride and the chloride is released and can be measured... uh, can be measured very accurately through analytical procedures. So, we were able to find a combination of genes that were very efficient at degradation of this... um, uh, of this compound. So, at the end, what we made was to put everything together. So, we put the genes from um, E. coli and from Simomonas for bringing about resistance to uh, the lack of oxygen. And then, at the same time, we enter into the bacterium this other set of genes for degradation of the chloropropene. And at the end, what we did was to put um, Exodomonas putida in the presence or in the absence of oxygen with the chloropropene. And bingo! It worked. So, at the end, what we obtained was precisely a bacterium that was able to grow or at least to be metabolically active under anaerobic conditions and that was able to degrade very efficiently these environmental pollutants. And to me, this is one example on how, by using the technologies and the tricks of uh, synthetic biology, one can really create new-to-nature properties because obviously... uh, well, not obviously, but certainly to this point, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to find bacteria of the type of uh, pseudomonas type that can degrade these compounds when you don't have oxygen around. Well, this is uh, one of the examples that I wanted to share with you. Uh, We have many others. And I really uh, encourage and advocate uh, uh, synthetic biologists to consider not only coli and other model systems, but also environmental bacteria as wonderful chassis and platform, uh, say, uh, genomes for engineering all types of interesting properties with tremendous environmental and industrial Applications. So, uh, the final take that I want to share with you is this uh, concept that you can start with something that uh, the nature gives to us, for instance, a tree, and then by using very basic techniques, there are many things that you can do. And you have that draft that you see in the picture, you can go through a river, and well, you know, by using trial and error, by using uh, different homemade approaches, uh, more or less sophisticated, there are many things that you can uh, do. But what makes a big difference is the adoption of engineering principles such as those that uh, have been running in other fields for a long time. And only in that way you can really go much, much farther that simple try and error uh, could do, as has been the case for many years in uh, genetic engineering. So, with this message, I leave you, not without thanking you for your attention. Thank you.